the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Allie. I am the youth pastor here, and it's good to worship God with you today. One day... Jesus takes three of his disciples to the top of a mountain, and something amazing happens. Jesus' face starts to shine like the sun. His clothes become a radiant white, and they hear the actual voice of God declare that Jesus is God's son. And the disciples are so excited. This is a big deal. They want to set up camp on the mountain, stay in this moment forever. But instead... Jesus brings them back to the valley. The valley is where things are not so amazing and not so exciting, but the valley is where there is work to be done, Jesus says. Now we as God's people eagerly await the day that Jesus returns in all his glory. What a mountaintop experience that will be. But for now, we live in the valley where it is clear that everything is not as it should be. Pastor Craig has walked us through the 12-step program. Now, these are biblical steps that help us move from the escapism of addiction and sin to living in peace with ourselves and others in this valley called life. And last week, Pastor Chris started us thinking on how we can learn to live in peace with the world around us, how we can engage the cultural waters that we swim in. And our hope for these two weeks, this little sermon series, comes from a line in the serenity prayer, which is used in that 12-step program, that we would learn to take as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it. Now, Jesus' life teaching and ministry occurred in a specific place, in a specific time in history with its own unique culture. And that's actually really good news for us because it means that the example of Jesus that we are meant to follow is deeply tangible. So last week, we began to look at the culture of Jesus' day, Hellenism. Pastor Chris taught us about how Alexander the Great conquered the known world, not so much with an army, but a worldview. He offered a gospel or good news of Hellenism, a worldview that was all about me. Think back to what you learned about ancient Greece and Rome in world history class, the philosophers, the plays, the Olympics, etc. Hellenism revolved around personal enjoyment and individual happiness. The gods were removed from the center of the worldview Humans became the center, and the gods were moved to humans' orbit, in easy reach if they were needed. And in the midst of this Hellenistic culture, the Israelites are seeking to work out what a lifestyle of obedience to God looks like. Last week, we learned about the Sadducees, the Jewish priestly families who abused their sacred role by aligning themselves with Hellenism so that they could maintain their power. And we learned about the Herodians, other Jews who thought to themselves, I can have my cake and eat it too. 
they embraced the things of Hellenism while also trying to loosely maintain their Jewish heritage. And today we're going to look at three more Jewish responses to the secular culture of Hellenism. But this is not just a history lesson. Our culture, we are, are also working out what it means to follow God within a specific culture. Our culture resembles Hellenism actually quite a lot. And the responses we learn about today are remarkably similar to Christian responses to culture today. Jesus offered a challenge for transformation to each response. So I invite you to use the little handout that you had when you came in and take down some notes. What do you resonate with in each group? Where do you see yourself in each response to culture? Before we begin, let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts bring glory to you. Speak, Lord, we are your servants, and we are listening. Amen. All right, friends, buckle up. First, the Essenes. The Essenes' response to Hellenism was to run away from it. They were a group largely made up of priests who were disillusioned by the Sadducees' corruption of the priesthood. They felt that the whole system just needed to be abandoned entirely, that God's judgment was coming, and so they fled to the desert and formed this small separatist community known as Qumran. Escaping the world around them, they devoted all of their energy to knowing the path and walking the path. And to them, the path was the text, the sacred scripture. The Essenes believed that one day, Israel was going to wake up and realize how far they had strayed from God, and they would want to know the path back to God. So the Essenes devoted themselves to preserving its content. Maybe you've heard of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. That's the Essenes. The Essenes are generally credited, credited with the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, every time we open our Bibles today, we owe the Essenes a huge debt of gratitude because scholars have found less than a 2% error rate in the Essenes' copying of what is our Old Testament text today. And we see this devotion they had in their crazy copying process. For example, let's say they are copying Genesis 1-1, which starts, in the beginning, God. It would take four people. The first person would read the word in, and the second person would look over their shoulder and check, yep, in, good. The third person would write the word in, and the fourth person would look over their shoulder and go, yep, in. They would repeat the process for the word the, 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 beginning, 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 but when they come to God, everything stops, pens, papers, down. All four people have to go and ritually wash themselves before anyone writes or reads the name God. Can you imagine having that level of patience? They're like the living version of spellcheck. What an incredible level of devotion to God's word, to his people. We can learn from that. 
But remember we said that Jesus offered a challenge for transformation to each group? Jesus didn't really speak to the Essenes because they weren't there to speak to. They weren't in the cities and towns where he healed or performed miracles, not on the hillsides or in the synagogues where he taught. They were isolated in their desert fortress, completely disconnected from the world. And therein lies the challenge from Jesus to the Essenes. You know the path, but you aren't actually walking the path because the mission is out here amongst the people. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Like the Herodians, the Essenes would have really struggled with this idea of be in the world, but not of the world. Herodians, consumers of Hellenistic culture, were in the world and very much of the world. The Essenes strived so hard to not be of the world that they ceased entirely to be in it. Now, unless today you move to a monastery, become a cloistered nun, or try to live without a TV, cell phone, or even a newspaper, if you still read that sort of thing, it's pretty challenging to remove yourself entirely from culture today, like the Essenes did. We don't have a physical Qumran that we can hide out in, but that doesn't mean that Christians today don't find ways to avoid culture. To replace YouTube and Facebook, we have things like GodTube and Facebook. That's really hard to say. We have Christian camps, Christian schools, and my favorite, Bible Man, the Christian version of Superman. Now, these things have value in and of themselves. I've participated in half of them myself. The danger is when we use them to shield ourselves, protect ourselves from the culture we live in by surrounding ourselves only with like-minded people and content. They become a means of abandoning the mission that God has given us. Because rather than fear or avoid the culture of the valley we live in, Jesus wants us to learn to engage it. Not so that we can become undiscerning consumers of the culture, but because our creative God, who is making all things new, will do so using the people and things that are in this world to do so. We can't share the good news of God's love the way that Jesus modeled for us if we don't understand or cannot wisely engage the culture that those we hope to reach with that love are a part of. Jesus, also known as Emmanuel, God with us, came to be with people. So we must too. The Essenes, how do you relate? In what way is Jesus inviting you to be transformed? All right, next up. The Zealots. The Zealots' response to Hellenism was to fight it. 
Unlike the Essenes, the Zealots didn't show their devotion through retreat. Quite the opposite. Rather, they believed in the myth of redemptive violence, that God actually wanted them to destroy everyone who opposed or tainted Judaism. We meet the Zealots in the story of Hanukkah. An invading group of Hellenists laid siege to God's temple in Jerusalem, and for days no priest was able to enter to keep the temple lamps lit. A small group of militant Jews, the Zealots, defeated the invaders and reclaimed the temple, and that's when they discovered that miraculously, eight days later, the lamps were still lit. Then, in an effort to return Israel to its status as a nation under God, the victorious zealots put the priestly families in charge of ruling. However, they are quickly disappointed as these Sadducees embraced Hellenism and became completely corrupt. In the years surrounding Jesus' life and ministry, the zealots had two enemies, the Sadducees and Rome. A group of zealots assassinated a high priest right in the temple. Uh, A group of zealots held a whole legion of Roman soldiers hostage. When Rome negotiated the release of their soldiers by promising they would lay down their weapons and leave peacefully, the zealots agreed to their terms only to slaughter the entire legion as soon as they were weaponless. Yes, the Romans were famous for their brutality. Look no further than the crucifixion of Jesus and many of his followers. But the zealots returned in kind, becoming no different than the pagans they opposed. The myth of redemptive violence is a vicious cycle. It cannot end in anything but more violence. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, was a zealot. He was one of many people who believed that the promised Messiah would free Israel from Rome's occupation. By betraying Jesus to the Sadducees, Judas believed that he was giving Jesus the opportunity to show his true agenda as a military leader. And scripture details Judas' devastation when he realized how gravely he misunderstood the situation. And then there's Jesus' famous disciple, Peter. Peter may not have been a zealot, but we know he was extremely zealous. Peter's zeal and passion was what made him fitting for his role in the formation of the early church. But Jesus has really strong words for Peter when his zeal shows up with violence. But one of the men with Jesus, we learn in John's gospel, that's Peter, pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. The path of violence is never the way of the kingdom of God. We don't have to look far in the history of our nation or the world to see that the myth of redemptive violence still persists today. However, at first glance, the zealots might feel like the least relatable response to culture today because most of us are not quick to or would never resort to physical violence. But my study of the zealots has challenged me to wrestle with my own zealot-like tendencies because wrapped up in the myth of redemptive violence is the issue of anger 
especially what we deem righteous anger. The zealots felt very justified in their use of physical violence by pointing to examples of God's anger in the Old Testament. But God is also described many times in the Old Testament as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. When it does reference anger, it's attributed to God's feelings about the sins of Israel and the surrounding nations. Jesus was angry and knocked over the tables of the money changers in the temple. He, too, was addressing the sin and corruption of the Sadducees. To be angry in light of corruption, injustice, and sin is the right of our holy God, the only one without sin, the creator who planned something entirely different, entirely better for his creation. That is righteous anger. We are created in God's image. When we encounter things in this world that are not as they should be, it is right that we will feel angry at the sin and injustice we witness. But for us to act with any kind of violence, physical, verbal, or emotional, and call it righteous anger is actually self-righteous anger. It fails to grasp the reality of our own fallenness and our daily need for a savior. A broken world crafts broken people. We are not perfect. We are not God. And so our attempts to make things right will not always be right. Feeling anger is not the problem. But what we do with our anger matters a lot. In Matthew, Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, verbal violence, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, emotional violence, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. We live in an angry culture where outrage and offense are the go-to reaction. And having the last word, no matter how we get it, is applauded. But Jesus says that we are to invest our energy instead into reconciliation, which is restoring relationships, healing what once was broken, bringing together what was once far apart. God needs people with zeal, people passionate about the kingdom of God and seeing it come to reality in all its beauty here on this earth. I often find myself caught up in that zeal, passionate to the point of frustration or anger when I see things that could be better. But I need to be careful. When my zeal consumes me, it becomes easier to justify my lesser and baser instincts, like violence with my words or emotions. 
It's like a campfire. Are my flames warming others with the love of Jesus or burning them and burning me out? The zealots, how do you relate? In what way is Jesus inviting you to be transformed? All right, last one, the big kahuna, the Pharisees. The Pharisees' response to Hellenism was to ignore it. If you asked a Pharisee, what should we do about Rome? They would say, nothing. God will deal with Rome. Our job is to focus on obeying God's commands. When our Bibles reference the chief priests or, Sadduc- or scribes, excuse me, that's the Sadducees. When our Bibles reference the religious teachers or teachers of the law, that's the Sadducees. It can be really confusing because the Sadducees and Pharisees are often referred to in the same breath or sentence, but in reality, they had vastly different beliefs, motivations, and behaviors. Jesus spent three years with the Pharisees, and while it generally didn't change their hearts, most of them respected his teaching as a rabbi. Jesus spent a week with the Sadducees, and they killed him. The Pharisees' life revolved around the synagogue where God's commands, or the Torah, was read, heard, taught, and studied. But unlike the Essenes, whose devotion and knowledge of Scripture never left the physical page, the Pharisees wanted to know so that they could obey. And we hear this in their interactions with Jesus. Teacher, what is the most important commandment? Teacher, why don't your disciples follow all the rules for the Sabbath? Jesus, when you say we need to be born again, how exactly does one do that? In almost all of their questions, we hear this desire to do the right thing the right way. And we see this in their interactions with other people. The Pharisees saw God's rescue as being contingent on their obedience as a nation. If we would just be obedient enough, then God would rescue us. So when they famously looked down their noses at a person they believed to be wrong or committing sin, their thought was, you are the reason we can't have nice things. You, your lifestyle, your choices, your lack of obedience are the reason that Rome is still here. You are the reason that God has not saved us. And we know a lot about the Pharisees because Jesus had some strong words for them. Just one verse, Matthew 20, 20, excuse me, 23, 23, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. The Pharisees and their rabbis had created this system of rules called the rabbinic law. It was crazy detailed and complex, almost impossible to follow, and they imposed it on everyone around them. And their man-made rules went far beyond the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, God's actual commands to his people. 
For example, in the Old Testament, God's commands for the Sabbath are the Israelites should set aside the seventh day of the week for God. No person or animal in the community can work. They can't buy or sell anything or light a fire, all things relating to work. That's it. But in the rabbinic law, there are 36 pages of Sabbath regulations. Everything from the way that a tailor should put down his needle at work to what time the night before the Sabbath your oven needs to be empty. This is called the fence around the law. Instead of one orange cone letting you know that a pothole exists, imagine 20 orange cones set 20 feet back from the actual pothole. These were boundaries drawn far from the rule so that by keeping it, any person would be uh, certain to avoid breaking the actual God-given command. While the Essenes avoided culture and the Zealots attacked it, the Pharisees created their own culture, a system of do's and don'ts. And following those do's and don'ts was what made you a good Jew in the eyes of the Pharisees. A number of years ago, I was in a friend's wedding. Her fiance's father was a Baptist pastor, and so there wouldn't be any dancing at their wedding reception, which is not a big loss for me because I'm a terrible dancer. But this was the first time I had heard that there are Christians who actually, actually believe that dancing is wrong. And I was so curious why. So my friend explained that it wasn't so much that dancing is bad in and of itself, but it shouldn't be done because of what it might lead to. By not dancing, people would be kept far away from sin. This is a great modern example of the fence around the law, a human rule made to keep people safely in the realm of obedience. Evangelical Christianity has similarly created our own culture that suggests to be a Christian is to dress a certain way, vote a certain way, and avoid certain things of today's culture. Like the Pharisees, we need to humbly evaluate what God has actually said and what commands we have created. And our measuring stick is this. God's way always makes it possible for people to enter into relationship with him. God's way does not create boundaries for people into his presence. Now, Jesus saw tons of potential in the Pharisees. With their devotion to the text and to obeying God's commands, Jesus says they're so close. They have almost everything else, but they're missing compassion the essential element to carrying out the mission of God. When the Pharisees come to him and say, Jesus, we want to be faithful. We want to obey God. What's the most important thing for us to do? Jesus responds, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law 
and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Friends, the way of God doesn't need our protection. God doesn't need us to be his bouncers for the kingdom of God. When that is what our energy gets poured into, Jesus says that we, like the Pharisees, have taken a good thing, obedience, and wrongly made it the main thing. We will have settled for a preservation of our ideals rather than enjoyed participating in the mission of God. Because the mission of God is not to make other people obey God. Think back for a moment. What drew you into relationship with Jesus? I can almost guarantee you that it wasn't a system of rules or right thinking, but rather how God's unconditional love and grace pursued you while you were still far away, welcomed you in and changed everything about your heart. The Pharisees, how do you relate? In what way is Jesus inviting you to be transformed? The people of Jesus' day are living in and being shaped by a particular culture. At the same time, they're seeking to live a faithful life in relationship with God. Jesus came into that specific culture teaching and modeling by his example what is most important for us as his followers as we do life in our culture today. I'd like to invite Pastor Chris up for, I guess, a little conversation. As you can imagine, we have spent a lot of time sitting with all these different groups, and I think it's pretty safe to say we found a little of ourselves in each of them, right? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. So... I have explained already how I resonate with the zealots. Didn't want to, but do. Uh, What about you? So I think um, many of you know that I'm a bit of an introvert, or maybe a bit is actually not enough. I'm I'm pretty solid introvert, and uh, strong emotion also tends to mess with me a lot. Uh, When I'm in a place where there's a lot of strong emotion, say debates about whether or not contemporary music and traditional music are at odds with each other, you know, things like that. Um, I really resonate with the Essenes. It can be really easy for me to get into those highly charged moments of hard conversation and just want to escape and just disappear. Um, You know, run away off into the middle of the woods and just live there by myself and let you all sort it out yourselves. (laughs) I actually get to do that next week as an introvert. I'm so looking forward to camping by myself. It's going to be great. Yeah, the Essenes, I feel like my challenge is uh, to stay present and to intentionally spend time uh, with people who don't think like me so that I don't end up in a Qumran of my own, uh, my own little echo chamber of thinking, if you will. So... The thing is, is that we can't really truly isolate ourselves in today's world. So um, I've, you know, I've kind of come to realize that if I do completely go to isolate myself, go off into the, the woods, do whatever alone, um, I would start missing some things. Like other people provide things in my own life that I really like and value. Um, so last week we talked about the Herodians, and I, I think... I said at one point that it would be really likely that we would all resonate with them on a pretty strong level at some point as Americans, Mm. as Western Christians. 
did you resonate with them at all? Yeah, I like that phrase that we are most likely cultural Herodians even today. Um, I find for me that uh, my Herodianism uh, sneaks up on me. It's less of a daily conscious choice and more like one day I look around my apartment and go, I am one person and a cat. Why do I have so much stuff? <laughs> or uh, I realize I'm replacing my need for God with um, an insane amount of Netflix hours or food distraction, basically. And sometimes I wonder what it would look like if instead of these waves of awareness, my, how much I was consuming and what I was consuming was more of a daily awareness. Yeah, I, I can feel that. I mean, there's always one more Apple device for me to get. Because <laughs> um, none of you have ever had that before either. Uh, but we like it when you get it because then you can explain it to the rest of oh, us. Okay. <laughs> Tech support, it's good. Um, I mean, they're helpful tools, right? We all have these tools that we like to get, things that we use all the time. But asking ourselves the question, like, how much is too much? Do I really need this one more thing? Um, in our culture, that's called consumerism. And it's kind of the basis for our culture in a lot of ways, or one of the bases of our culture. So asking ourselves those hard questions about what is what we need, what is too much, um, I think is an important thing for, for me anyway, daily. Yeah, which circles back to what we were saying about self-awareness, mm -hmm. which I actually think is pretty important for me with how I resonate with the Sadducees, which, again, they were the ones who were all about preserving their power. And they had inherent power as the priests. They were born into a priestly family. It was their, what they were given. Um, and I have inherent power, as a white woman living in the wealthiest nation in the world. Um, my voice as a white woman is heard more easily in places of power than my sisters of color. How am I using my voice? I may not consider myself wealthy, but I am by global standards. So that means I have buying power. How do I use it? Am I, do I prioritize the low price tag and convenience? Or do I look at what organizations I'm supporting and do they um, abuse their power in relation to people or the earth? That's the Sadducees for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I don't tend to resonate as much with the Sadducees, again, because of the intensity of things, but um, this, I guess, would be kind of my confession time that I tend to resonate more with the Pharisees. As a pastor, it can sometimes be really easy to look at people in the congregation that I'm just not going to look at right now um, and ignore my own shortcomings in favor of saying, you're the problem because you won't do things my way. Um, I've always had this thing that compassion is a bit of a learned thing for me. Um, it's never really come naturally to me like it has for somebody like Pastor Diane, or at least I assume it comes naturally for Pastor Diane. It sure looks like it comes <laughs> naturally for Pastor Diane. Um, but it's never been something for me that's been an easy thing to engage. And so for me, it's a constant. I have this, I have this clock on my wall that um, to help me remember this kind of thing. It's the hands are just kind of there and all the numbers are down in the corner. And it says, whatever. Um, and that's to help me remember that when people come in I'm not supposed to just focus on this task that I'm working on or this group of things that I'm trying to get done, but that people are important mm -hmm. and that I'm supposed to be caring for them and loving them even if they interrupt me 
um, in the time that I don't want to be interrupted. I remember the day I learned that that clock is not a functioning clock. It was not a good day. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually took the battery out of it just because. <laughs> very rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's probably easiest for us to be cultural Herodians, and I know it's probably easiest for me to be a religious Pharisee. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to fear. I think I resonate with the fence around the law because sometimes it's just easier to cling to the rules for fear of, um, what's it called, the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. um, if I do this, what will people say about me or what will it lead to? Um, but if I love that person, what will people um, think? Will they think that I'm condoning their actions? Um, I have to remember that uh, Jesus sat at the table with those um, society despised and he chose love first, um, not rules. That's mm -hmm. my challenge for the Pharisees. I hope this has been something helpful for you all. Uh, reflecting a little bit with us. This is something we've been wrestling with a lot over the past, what, four weeks now, eight weeks? It's been a long, a we long listen to time. a lot of podcasts for this <laughs> series. Um, but this is good, hard, reflective work that's, that's necessary in today's culture because of how um, challenging it can be to live and walk the way of Christ in times that are very similar to the way that Jesus' followers had to. Um, those handouts, I would love for you to take that handout home. Um, there's, on the back, there's all those little empty spots. Do some writing, do some reflecting. Ask yourself those hard questions. What things have I inherited as a Sadducee that maybe I've abused, not even thought about it? Um, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Herodians. What ways do you identify with them and what's Jesus asking you to do uh, and how is he asking you to be transformed in the midst of that? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for not leaving us without an example of how to live faithfully in our world today. May your Holy Spirit grant us the courage to humbly examine our hearts, words, and actions as we consider how we carry ourselves in this world and this culture and how you might be inviting us to change there is nothing that we love more than you, Father God. Amen.